Well, so we, uh, we are people, you and I, who are obsessed with forecasting ahead. Am I right? You do everything in your power to plan, to protect and preserve from, from any perspective pain. You try to sidestep, as I do, any inconvenience. It's the reason why we have insurance policies for everything. You insure things that you should insure, right? Like you insure your car, your home, your life even. Like there are things that are just wise and uh, discerned to insure. And then there's some crazy policies out there. I don't know if you've heard of these. You can get an insurance policy just in case you get abducted by aliens. It's a real one. It's a real one. You can go get an insurance policy for your family just in case a UFO comes and zaps you away. That's a real thing. There's also like, you know, the, the ones that are tweeners, are like, should we get this or should we not? There's the cold feet insurance policy that if your wedding day or, the, you know, your kids that you're planning for investing all this money, one party, you know, decides it's not worth the commitment and, you know, skips town, there's insurance policies for that. Did you know that there's an insurance policy just in case you experience a virgin birth? There are three nuns in our world today who have taken on this insurance policy just in case that the Immaculate Conception happens again to them. So, so all that to say, we are a people who are fear-driven. And because we are striving so hard, straining so badly to forecast ahead to prevent pain, to avoid the unnecessary inconveniences of life, we, like the people of Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, we obsess over anything and everything. You and I are people who lay awake late into the night, who look at the clock and see that it's not just 1 a.m. anymore, it's 2.30 and then it's 3.45 and then it's 5.45 and finally the alarm goes off and you've just been swimming in all of the what ifs, all of the things that keep you stuck, keep you obsessing over the very things you actually have no control over. You see, so this Advent season, we are doing our very best to prepare our minds, to prepare our hearts, to fixate our gaze upon what we will celebrate together as a community on Christmas Eve, that there was a light that shone through the dark and it dispelled the darkness within us and it dispels the darkness around us. And this week we get to talk about the fact that, that this light dispels the darkness of our fears, of our dread. And what, what we're going to strive to do is actually enter the shoes of those people that this promise of Isaiah 9, this wonderful prophetic promise that there is a Messiah coming, we want to situate ourselves into the shoes of the people of God in Isaiah 8 to fully receive the wondrous promise of Isaiah 9. And in doing that, we are going to come to find that here is a people that have received the word. There's a pending doom a pending invasion because you have chosen all other things to trust, so many other security blankets to place your hope in, and they are frantically trying to forecast ahead. Well, how do I, how do I avoid this? How do I, what do I do about this? How, what, what are insurance policies that I could call upon to avoid this pain? And you and I are gonna find ourselves situated, not condemning them or judging them, but realizing we are them. You see, because you and I are two a people overwhelmed by the hardships we can't avoid. We are overwhelmed by the hardships we just simply can't avoid. And the invitation this morning and in this season is, let's be a people who behold the one nothing is too hard for. That's gonna be our aim today. We wanna not be overwhelmed any boy by, any overwhelmed anymore by only the hardships we can't avoid, but we wanna fixate our gaze today because there is one who nothing is too hard for.
You with me? Here we go. Look in your Bibles with me or on the screen. Here's Isaiah chapter 8, verse 5 for a little context. So Isaiah says, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloa that flowed gently, rejoiced over Razin and the son of Remaliah, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels, go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. I want to pause here. So this is the warning that's, that's given to the people of God, the Israelites. And what's fascinating about this invasion, this pending doom of the Assyrian army, is it's illustrated as a raging river. Did you hear it? Mighty and many. It's over the banks, and it's reaching even to the neck. It's supposed to provide this vivid imagery for each of us. Of, you're standing on your tiptoes and the water levels keep rising and it's up to here and now you're treading water just to keep your mouth from being covered by water. It's an imagery of drowning. That's what's being described word after word, verb after verb. And then look back, look down with me later in the chapter in verse 22 to provide another illustrative kind of reality of what's happened to these people. Verse 22, it reads this, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, I don't know about you, but darkness to me isn't really categorically thick. Like, I don't know how it can be thick. And yet what the original language is trying to denote for us is that it's like fog in the air. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's so dark. And to, to describe it in this way as thick, it's 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 affecting your breathing. It's so thick in the air, all of a sudden your, your breathing is quickening because it's like fog all around you. It clouds everything. You can't see the hand in front of your face. Now, I'm gonna make a connection here and I need you not to judge me for a little while as I explain this. Um, one of my dearest friends that's been, honestly my closest friend for 15 years, his name is June. He was here at the first service sitting way up there and uh, I forgot to ask him if I could share this, but then I got permission to share it again here. Uh, in college, we dreamed all the time of going on these grand adventures, right? Like we're gonna do this crazy thing, we're gonna climb that mountain, we're gonna do all these amazing things. We talked about, man, you know, we're really fun, we should just go on a cruise with all of our friends. And uh, this is an image of a cruise. And I just need y'all to know, when June told me, I'm deathly afraid of going on a cruise, I thought he was joking. What's there to fear? This is an amusement park on the water, right? Like, this, are, are you afraid of the lights? Like, what, what are we talking about, the buffets? Like, it's all good on the wonders of the seas, am I right? Like, it, and then he was able to explain to me, no, 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 you don't understand, I'm afraid of being out of the boat onto the, into the ocean. Like, that is his greatest fear, is to somehow no longer be on the boat and be in the middle of the ocean. So being like the terrible friend that I am, as a college kid, I was like, oh baby, we are for sure throwing you overboard. <laughs> like, and, I, and I told him that a thousand times over, of like, hey, by the way, we're planning this cruise and when you're sleeping, you better have your floaties on. Like, like we're, I was that sort of friend of like making those soft and subtle threats every week of just like, hey, by the way, we're gonna throw you overboard, it's gonna be awesome. Uh, you're gonna overcome this fear by facing it head on. There's flailing in the water, it'll be great. Um, I promise I'm not that terrible of a friend anymore, hopefully. But what I come to realize in maturing with some time is my, my dear friend June has 
a couple of like really deep fears that I think we all experience, that we all actually have deep within us. And the first is this fear of drowning that he has. He's afraid to drown because he imagines like those water levels rising up to here and he's treading water for God knows how long. And all of a sudden, no matter what you do with your hands, no matter how hard you kick with your feet, you're out of control. There's nothing you can do. At some point, no energy you can muster, no grand plans you can fathom will help you, will rescue you. And I realized that my friend June like has orchestrated his entire life to control. And like that was his confession to me of like, I, I'm, I'm deeply afraid of having zero control in those waters or in life. But not only that, the ocean, here's a picture of the ocean. This is what my friend June is actually deeply afraid of. Is he's like stuck in deep darkness and he can't even understand what's swimming by him. It's a fact that in the dark, in thick darkness, you're facing the unknowable. Like the things you cannot plan for or forecast. You couldn't have possibly secured some design to prevent this pain. Right, like you don't know what's swimming towards you in the ocean when you're down under. So it's a fear of the unknown. And that is, per my friend confessing and confiding into me, like I have a deep fear of the unknown, the unknowable. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is us in a nutshell, just played out in different ways. Maybe you're not afraid of cruises like my friend June, but, but maybe you're afraid of other things that keeps you up at night. You're afraid of the conversation that you never know if and when it'll happen. You're, you're afraid of a conflict that, that may result in something that actually may, may be a total imagination in your mind. And what we are wrestling with in the, in the sleepless nights we experience is the fear of the uncontrollable, the fear of the unknown. And so how do the people of God here in Isaiah 8 respond to that? Without going there in verse 19, I need you to know they go to all their insurance policies. They go to everything else except God. They inquire of the necromancers, the mediums. Essentially what they're saying is God kind of put us in this mess. We got to go to everything else. Every bank account, every insurance policy, every wise and, and thought, thoughtful person, like we got to go to everything else. And, and God is saying, like, well, how could you not come to me? See, we too dread the dark. We too obsess over the countless what-ifs of our lives. We toss and we turn in the night. We, we strive to plan day after day. And in the end, what we're essentially communicating to God is we've got to do something about our fear or someone else that we can touch and, and speak to right now, some plan we can form or insurance policy we can buy, we'll take care of it from here. You see, our response is just like the Israelites. We're not too far off. And if we're honest, if, if you're here today and you're not in that season, you're not going through something where you're, you're dreading the dark or the unknown or the uncontrollable, you in your right mind would look at yourself in the past and say, stop that. Stop worrying about that. And yet we, we can't help ourselves. We find ourselves there time and time again. And the text is going to provide a very simple and very direct invitation. Look in the text with me. Look in the text with me as the invitation when we are so overwhelmed by the hardships we just simply can't avoid. In verse 13 of chapter 8, it reads this. But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary, 
and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now, I need to pause here because I, I just made a, a statement. And I said, the invitation of the text is simple and direct. And the invitation is honor him as holy. Honor him as holy. And you might be sitting in your seat thinking, you just lied. Doesn't sound that simple. It doesn't sound that direct. It sounds like a lot of religious words, and I need to know what in the world that is. What does it mean to honor God as holy? You see, we're here today wrestling with the fact that there is a title given to the promised Messiah, mighty God. And I'm, I'm convinced that for my life, and I think for yours, we don't always think about Jesus in this way enough. So we need to honor him as holy. What do those words mean? To honor is to uplift to raise high, to shed light upon, right? Like you honor someone by naming and acknowledging the fact that they've done something wonderful, something great or good. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what that person's done. That's what it means to honor somebody. And then to honor as holy. This Messiah, this promised one, is unlike anybody else. Completely other. That's what holy means, set apart. So what does it look like to honor Jesus as holy? It's to view him as the mighty God. You see, baked into those words that are very specifically chosen, mighty is a word that means a champion, a warrior that had to fight another warrior and is, you know, kind of like foot upon the other warrior of like, I got this, guys. It's in of its own word, verbiage, one of comparison, one of competition. And so is the word God. It's not the word Yahweh, which is the covenantal, promise-keeping, promise-making name of God for the Israelites. It's the generic word, Elohim. Everyone's got an Elohim. The Assyrians have got Elohims. The Egyptians have Elohims. Everybody's got lowercase g gods. And what he is saying with these words packed together is there is a champion of all of them. There is one who would defeat all of them. And his his moniker is mighty God. Honor him, uplift him, acknowledge him, view him rightly as completely other, as better than, as victorious, as champion. So the invitation today is redirect your fears. Redirect them. That is the simple pointed invitation. When you lay awake at night and the clock just keeps moving as your mind moves faster, would you redirect your thoughts would you, would you hold them captive and strain to think about a God who is stronger than your fears? A God who is mightier than your potential problems? We need to be a people who actually think about God deeply in this way as strong, as powerful, as champion over everything we could possibly face. That is the direct and simple invitation of this passage that there is a mighty God and he is accessible to you for you to think on for you to cast all your fears upon. And, to be, and if we're honest, we just don't do this. We would rather peddle in all of the what ifs. We'd rather call upon every insurance plan. We'd, ra we'd rather do everything else in our own strength and in our own might. Friends, instead of fearing and obsessing over the unknowable, the unavoidable, will we instead be a people who redirect those fears, our thoughts, our concerns, our planning, our longing, and our honoring? Will we do that? And I, need to, I just need to name this. That baked into this invitation is also a warning. Um, 
these are the parts of the capacities that, that, that I, I want to tread carefully. I, I want to say rightly because the truth is this invitation has a warning coupled with it. Did you see in the passage that was read, there was one word to denote, hey, guess what? If you honor him as holy, he will be your sanctuary. Just one word, which means your refuge, your safety, which is awesome news. So great to hear that. And then there's a litany of other words to describe if you don't honor him as holy because he is mighty. Did you hear it? He will be your snare, a stumbling block, a stone of offense. He will be a trap, an ensnarement. Like there's all these words to describe if you do not honor him in this way, if you don't redirect your fears and just swim in your own, God, as mighty as he is, will only be a snare to you and not a sanctuary. If you do not think of him rightly, he will not be your refuge. He will, in fact, be your reckoning. And what it reminds me of is, is this image. So this is an image of a, of a storm. And living in Houston, we, we probably are aware of this too often. Uh, we see this on the radar, and it just, everything in our body kind of like takes flight. Like it, something happens internally because, oh, no, we've got to prepare for this. Because we know how strong and potentially dangerous, how ferocious a Category 4, Category 5 storm can be. And what I want us to recognize is all the imagery of God as, like the the judgment of God, the power of God, his might, to me it feels like a storm. And what's fascinating about a hurricane or storms like these is you see that little, kind of like that little hole right in the center? That's called the eye of the storm, which to this day is something of a scientific conundrum. People don't know why the eye of the storms actually happen. Because there's some weird thing that happens where wind, enough wind goes up and out and over the eye wall and enough wind goes downward to create this unique space of roughly 45 miles in diameter where it is great calm in the midst of the storm. Where all of a sudden there in that space, the winds die down to 10 to 15 miles per hour. Just outside the eye, 75 to 125 miles per hour winds. It's, it's torrential rain, torrential storm. Right there in that eye, there's no rain. And the winds die down sharply. It's a great calm. And what I think that this text is trying to help us grasp and understand is you and I don't think about Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, mighty enough. He is like a storm. He is that strong. And yet what he's saying is if we honor him as holy, if we choose to see him rightly, we will be right there in the eye of that storm. He will be a sanctuary for us. It doesn't belittle his power. It doesn't lessen his strength. It doesn't mean that you fear nothing. The invitation instead is to redirect your fears to one who is powerful who wants to be a safe refuge for you, but let's not strip this promised one of all of his power. Fear him. Think of him rightly. He is strong and mighty. He is ferocious. And that's, and if we're honest, we just don't think about Jesus this way. Like even in this season, in all the celebrations we go to, and all the nativity scenes, it is right to think about the meekness of Jesus as a baby in a manger. Wonderful. To think about Jesus and, 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 to, and to automatically assume that the way he's approaching you is with a warm embrace and whispering into your good and kind words, that is so needed and necessary. And yet you will never appreciate that Jesus enough if you don't consider him as mighty. If you don't fear him for all of his power, you won't relish in his tenderness and his meekness enough. 
You won't turn to him in the way that he desires you to. You won't honor him as holy, completely set apart. And the way that I want to unpack this for us is the ways that I think he was trying to reveal this to his disciples 2,000 years ago. So you don't have to turn there. The verses are on the screen here behind me. But I want us to turn to Mark chapter 4 because in Mark chapter 4, something, something clicks in the minds of the disciples. Something shifts in their perspective of who this Jesus is. Allow me to read this passage for us. In Mark chapter 4, it says this, On that day when evening had come, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, that being Jesus, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? To provide just a little bit of context, the the men on this boat, the disciples of Jesus, most of them are fishermen, seasoned sailors. They've been on this boat many a time. They've been on the sea often, lived their lives on it. They know that storms rage all the time. It's accustomed to them. And yet this particular storm is overwhelming the system. They think that they're going to die. The waves are crashing in. They can't, they, they don't know what to do with their hands. It's an uncontrollable, unavoidable storm. And so what do they do? They run down to the stern to a sleeping Jesus and they say, don't you care about us? Have you ever said that to Jesus? Am I the only one in the room that's that's said a cry like that of like, don't you care? I'm dying here. You're just going to sit there asleep on the cushion? It's this refrain that I think is common to many of us who have walked with Jesus for some time. Don't you care? And so what does Jesus do in response to that question? He rebukes. He first rebukes the wind and the sea. And I want us to pause there for a second to understand. The words in the text are peace, be still. We sound like a psalm, right? It sounds like a, a song that we would sing earlier on this morning. It feels like Jesus got up on like the edge of the boat. He put on a nice robe. He whipped out his Bible and was like, peace, see, be still. That's not the connotation of these words. These words are something more like what my dad would do, what he trained in me as a young child. When he made a certain sound, I like froze in my footsteps. He he would make this sound, he would go, oh, and in that moment, I would like, nobody move. Something's gone terribly wrong. It's not me, I promise, it's not me. Like I would immediately be like, I didn't do anything. And I would freeze in the moment because it was terrifying to me of like, what comes next? (laughs) It wasn't me. And that's the exact connotation of these words. It's not peace, be calmer. He tells the seas and the waves and the wind to shut up. He tells them, stop in your tracks is what he says. And what happens is not just what happens normally when a storm dies down where the waves crash for hours. It says that there was a great calm. The winds and the waves completely subsided and it, that, that great calm phrase, it's a, it, it actually is a word that means like glass. 
the sea just became so still you could see your reflection as you looked over the boat. So imagine for these disciples, they're terrified because the wind is crashing and then the next second after Jesus tells it to shut up, they look down and they can see their faces. That's what's happening in this moment. And then Jesus not only rebukes the wind and the waves, he rebukes the disciples. He looks at them and says, where is your fear? Why do you still have no faith in me? If I'm in the boat, why are you so terrified? If I am with you as I promise that I am, God with us, this thing that we're celebrating that Jesus has come to be Emmanuel, if I am with you, why are you so overwhelmed? Why are you so undone? And he doesn't say don't fear anything. What do the disciples do in response? They greatly fear Jesus because they finally realized Last week we learned that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Up to this point, the disciples have only experienced Jesus as that. A wonderful, divine, miraculous, insightful, like, like he has spoken things that they've never heard before. He's, he's done some miraculous signs where they're like, wow, this is something heavenly. He has been a wonderful counselor up until Mark chapter five. They get on the boat, the seas rage, he tells it to shut up and it goes completely silent and now they realize, oh, this is mighty God. And now their great fear is not placed in waves or in wind, but in the Messiah, in Jesus, where it belongs. So friends, I need you to hear me say this this morning. Your fear is misplaced. You honor, you devote your time and energy and thoughtfulness late into the night into things that, that will not work out well for you. And I'm convinced that if I were to be a person and if you were to be an individual that would set your gaze more so on this mighty God, that your fears would be placed unto him rightly, I think we would be a people who navigate the storms that will inevitably come our way with such greater joy, peace, all the things that God promises us. If we'd be a people who actually fear him and honor him as holy, Now, I want to just conclude with this. Um, one of my favorite quotes, uh, I first heard this when I read the book, The Count of Monte Cristo. I'm just going to put this quote up on the screen here for you. I read this book in high school and have read it several times since. It's, in my opinion, the greatest fictional work out there in case you want something to read over the break. And there's this quote that the Count speaks over his son, doesn't know it's his son just yet, but he's experienced this moment where his son has been incredibly courageous through like this unavoidable, you know, terrible moment where he's kidnapped and, and he speaks this over him on his birthday to honor him, to commend him and invite him to something. And I've, I've like meditated on this quote. I'm like, I want to be this sort of guy. So let me just read this for us. He says, life is a storm, my young friend. You will bask in the sunlight one moment and be shattered on the rocks the next. What makes you a man is what you do when that storm comes. You must look into that storm and shout as you did in Rome, do your worst for I will do mine. Then the fates will know you as we know you. What a quote, right? Like it's, uh, especially as like a young teenager male, like I wrote that in so many journals. I, you know, like I wanted to make it my mantra, like I wanna be this sort of guy when I grow up and I need to make a confession to you. Um, you know, in, in my 30s, like I've not been this man one time. <laughs> Like, honest confession here. I have faced many a storms 
right? Like I have faced really hard things with my family, with my son. Like there have been like great moments of tribulation and I have not once looked at those moments and been like, do your worst. Not one time did I say that, not once. And I wish that I have. You'd think with how many times I wrote this quote in a journal, I would. It's memorized, right? But I have not one time done this. And I need you to hear me say this today. There is a man who actually embodied this perfectly, beautifully, wonderfully. That in our promised Messiah, he came. And what he accomplished in facing the greatest storm, you think about all that Satan had to try to get creative about, like what is the worst way possible that we could inflict damage on Jesus, the Son of God? Let's, let's betray him with all of his closest friends that he invested three straight years in loving upon. Let's have them be the ones to betray him. And let's also get all the people he came to save to be the ones that spit on him and mock him, strip him bare, throw him up on a Roman cross, pierce his, nail, pierce his hands and his feet, spear his side. Let's have them ridicule him time and again. Let's have them mock him constantly. You think about what death tried to do against Jesus. Like, I'm going to give Jesus my worst. And Jesus, in response, like, I, I want us to not forget that Jesus is in his meekness, in his compassion, in his mercy. He died for us. But in his great power, in his great might, in his great ferocity, he looked at death, and then he said, give me your worst because I'm going to give you mine. And he rose victoriously from that tomb. And with that, you know what we receive? We receive delight. We don't just have to be in the eye of the storm hoping the storm doesn't crash over us one day. In that refuge, in that safe place, in that sanctuary, he says, I give you all my delight because I gave death my worst. And that, friends, is why we can celebrate with such joy this season because Jesus came as mighty God. And so will you today redirect your fears onto him. The one, the one who has proven his holiness, proven his mightiness. Can we be a people who behold him? The one nothing is too hard for. Amen? Let me pray for us. So holy God, we thank you that this is yet one more day that we get to rehearse over our hearts what is true. And first and foremost, what is true of you. Thank you that you sent us Jesus, this child that was, this child that was born, this son that was given to us. Thank you that in him we can see with greater clarity all the power, all the might that heaven has to offer. That in Jesus, he is our great victor. And that because he died the death that we deserve to die, because he rose victoriously over that grave and over that tomb, we get to experience all the richest blessings of his affection and his delight. We get to look at him as our safe place, as our refuge, as our sanctuary. And so thank you. Thank you that we get to hum that tune even as we sing these songs and walk out of this place, that this is the season, God, for our hearts to be warmed again and again on rinse and repeat. We need it right now. We need to believe who you are in the midst of all the unknown storms that we'll face. God, please, 
Help us no longer be a people who are overwhelmed. Rather, let us be a people who long to see you rightly this day. God, we need you. And we are so thankful for Jesus. It is because of what he has done, because of who he is, that we sing and that we worship and that we live our lives in such a way filled with joy, filled with hope. Let us be a people who respond rightly to seeing you rightly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.